When was the last time you thought about your liver's health? Do you ever? On today's show, we will look at liver health. Love your liver and take care of it because you need it to be there for you every day. As well as a specific chronic liver disease. Primary sclerosis and cholangitis is a rare disease and the cause is unclear. Liver transplant. Knowing that we can dramatically change somebody's life makes it all worth it. And later, we'll hear from someone who suffered from a chronic liver disease requiring a liver transplant. Because without that, I mean, I honestly know I wouldn't be here today. It's Liver Awareness Month, so we're gonna show some love for our liver inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Our liver does its job so quietly and efficiently that 40% of Americans think they can live without a liver. Spoiler alert, you can't. Surveys show that the majority of people have low concern about liver disease compared to other diseases like heart disease or breast cancer, and most never ask their doctor about liver health. So it begs the question, when was the last time you showed some love for your liver? Tom Nilan is CEO of the American Liver Foundation. We recently had the pleasure of speaking with him, and he's pleased to speak with us about October being Liver Awareness Month because... Nobody talks about the liver. Nobody talks about liver disease. I mean, for something that is so important to our everyday life, it's hard to imagine that it gets so little conversation or the kinds of things you're doing. So thank you very much. Since we really know little about our liver, we started with the basics. What is our liver and where is it located in our body? The liver is the second largest organ in our body. The skin is the largest. It's located right under your rib cage on the right-hand side. It weighs about three pounds and it's shaped somewhat like a football deflated on one side. And he stresses that we absolutely need a liver because, well, you cannot live without a liver. Other organs may shut down, but the last line of defense is the liver. Once the liver shuts down, people are incapable of being revived. So it's a vitally important organ that is our key to life each day. So what exactly does the liver do? And why is it so critical for our survival? Everything you ingest, touch, any substance that gets into your body finds its way to the liver because the liver performs the vital function of turning nutrients into energy, but also purifying the body and purifying the blood. That alone should probably give you an instinct of why it's so important and why it is so at risk. And Tom tells us it's not just a vital organ, it's a unique one too. It's one of the great mysteries, quite frankly. 
physically of the human body, the liver has the ability to regenerate. If you take a part of your liver and donate it, your liver will regrow in the recipient in a month to six weeks back to full size. It is a unique aspect of the liver, which means in certain cases, even once it's damaged, it can heal. There's no other organ that regenerates like that. He says that a common misconception about compromised liver health is that it's necessarily connected to alcohol consumption, which simply isn't always the case. The moment people hear of liver disease, their immediate fallback is, well, obviously this is someone with an alcohol problem, and certainly alcohol can have its adverse effects but that is actually a minor part of what goes on with the liver. Tom goes on to say liver disease isn't one thing. There are literally dozens and dozens of different liver diseases. There are over a hundred different diseases that affect the liver, and it's estimated that over 30 million Americans have one form. They inhibit the ability of the liver to function every day. There are diseases that have their origin as early as birth, and there's many others sort of random liver diseases. There's hepatitis A, B, and C. There's primary sclerosing cholangitis. We'll hear about primary sclerosing cholangitis and somebody who suffered from it a bit later on today's show. Ahead of that, Tom says the American Liver Foundation is raising funds and awareness for liver disease research, but it's challenging. It's not necessarily the sexiest organ around, so not every young researcher flocks to do research on liver disease. And with recent breakthroughs, like finding a cure for hepatitis C, he's hopeful more research will get done. What's happened recently with hepatitis C is such a phenomenal breakthrough that hopefully that becomes an impetus for people to change lives. In the meantime, there are things you can do to protect your liver's health. Having an active lifestyle, but also watching what you eat, managing your weight, avoiding excessive alcohol. And loving your liver requires self-focus because, let's face it, nobody says, how's your liver, like they do about, you know, how's your heart? You need to be worried every day about your liver like you are about your heart. Finally, Tom says the American Liver Foundation has tons of resources available to you. I urge people to go to liverfoundation.org. We also have a national helpline, 1-800-GO-LIVER. We'll be sure to post that information on our CTSI website along with this show. That's Tom Nilon, CEO of the American Liver Foundation, giving us insight on our liver during Liver Awareness Month. Today, over 30 million people in the U.S. suffer from one of the more than 100 types of liver disease. And the reality is, many of them silently damage the organ without symptoms, which means many people live with liver disease without even knowing it. One such liver disease is primary sclerosing cholangitis, commonly referred to as PSC. Dr. Nicholas LaRusso is one of our nation's leading experts in PSC. He and his team at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, have become a major referral center for patients with PSC and a world leader in basic research on the disease. We have the privilege of gaining his insight on today's show. Dr. LaRusso provides perspective as to where PSC exists on the spectrum of liver diseases. It is a progressive, chronic, uncommon to rare disease. 
So there are about 30,000 people in the United States with this disease. It's much less common than hepatitis B and C. On the other hand, in spite of the fact that it is a rare disease, it accounts for about 6 to 8% of all the liver transplants done in the United States, which is remarkable given its rarity. So what physically happens to somebody afflicted with PSC? Dr. LaRusso explains that it begins with a system of vessels called the biliary tree. The biliary tree involves a series of tubes within the liver that then come out of the liver and empty into the small bowel. These tubes undergo the process of scarring. An analogy that I often use is if you had a hose and you had 10 people standing on the hose in different places, that is kind of what the strictures look like in PSC throughout the liver. And some of those strictures can evolve to the most dreaded complication, which is bile duct cancer or cholangiocarcinoma. And when the liver becomes compromised by PSC, how does it affect the organ's ability to perform its main functions of detoxifying blood, making proteins, and excreting bile? Dr. LaRusso says it varies. It may have no major impact on the ability of the liver to do its normal activities. In other situations, particularly when fibrosis or cirrhosis develops, all of these normal functions are compromised and it can lead to decompensated liver disease, which refers to the inability of the liver to perform its normal functions. What are symptoms leading to a diagnosis of PSC? At a 30,000-foot level, to some people, nothing really happens. They don't get sick. The disease doesn't progress very much. For others, it could be more rapidly advancing. And the challenge now is we're not always in a position to tell what the likelihood is of their disease advancing rapidly versus a more indolent course. And that's why there's a lot of research going on now to try to identify biomarkers to predict which patients are going to go in what direction. And so diagnosis of primary sclerosing cholangitis can be tricky, to say the least. Absolutely. In fact, the most common way the disease is diagnosed is an asymptomatic male, because it's 65-70% male, going for an insurance exam and being told that their liver tests are abnormal. As far as what's known about the cause of PSC... Not enough. A large number of studies were done. The general thinking was there is some genetic susceptibility among siblings. Nevertheless, studies led to the general conclusion that genetics at best can account for 10 or 15 percent of the abnormalities associated with PSC. Environmental factors are also being studied. What we and others are particularly interested in now is the concept of the exposome which is a general term for everything that an individual is exposed to from conception to death. A good example of what we're hoping to find is something, for example, in the environment that might be analogous to asbestos causing lung disease or gluten causing celiac disease. And that's what we're focused on now, to look at the intersection of the genome and the exposome. Also, the intestinal microbiome or gut bacteria. Increasingly, studies have been looking at the intestinal microbiome in patients with PSC compared to normals, in patients with PSC with inflammatory bowel disease. The idea that the intestinal microbiome might be involved in this disease is getting a lot of attention, and that has potential target areas. One is it helps us understand the cause of the disease. It also suggests a therapeutic approach, manipulating the intestinal microbiome with the hope that that could influence the disease. What is common treatment for PSC? Are there drugs to treat it? And is it curable? Right now, there is no regulatory approved 
drug by the FDA for the treatment of primary sclerosis and cholangitis. If the disease reaches the point of decompensated liver function and becomes life-threatening, the individual becomes a candidate for liver transplantation. Which is a good news, bad news situation, but Dr. LaRusso says it's definitely more good than bad. The good news is, and this is what I tell my patients, there is a potential effective treatment for this disease via liver transplantation. The bad news is that maybe up to 25% of patients after the liver transplant will get recurrent PSC. Bottom line, liver transplantation is an effective treatment. How effective? Later in this show, we'll hear from somebody who had PSC and received a new liver. Finally, Dr. LaRusso says there's a lot of pharmacologic research investigating treatments for PSC. So much, in fact, that... There are more treatments that are currently being looked at than there are patients available for studies. There are different types of synthetic bile acids that are being looked at, antibiotics being looked at. There are studies going on in Europe, in the United States, some initiated by pharma in partnership with academe. We're involved in several of those at Mayo because we have probably the largest population of patients with PSC in the country, if not the world. And then there are investigator-initiated studies in partnership with industry. That's Dr. Nicholas LaRusso, leading expert in primary sclerosing cholangitis at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. As Dr. LaRusso pointed out, chronic liver diseases like PSC often compromise the organ to the degree that it can no longer perform its vital functions. At that point, a patient might require a liver transplant. Coming up on today's show, we'll hear from a man who experienced just that. But first, we'll learn more about the process from the surgeon who performed that man's liver transplant. Dr. Christopher Hughes is Surgical Director of Liver Transplantation at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center's Starzl Transplantation Center. He recently shared his insight and expertise with us, and he begins by explaining that patients commonly need a liver transplant due to cirrhosis or scarring of the liver. Here, the word cirrhosis, you immediately think this is from alcohol, but actually alcoholism is lower down the list for patients that we see with cirrhosis. Hepatitis C is a very common one. What's the most common cause of cirrhosis he sees? The biggest reason for cirrhosis now is from fatty liver disease, which causes an inflammation in the liver and leads to scarring, which is the ultimate result of more than 30 different kinds of diseases that cause cirrhosis. We did a show earlier this year focusing on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Check out episode 35 of CTSI Discovery Radio to hear more more on that. Now, since cirrhosis is a slow, progressive process, at what point will a patient likely need a liver transplant? Once the liver starts to deteriorate to about 50 or so percent of its normal function, patients start to have symptoms. And people think, wow, this just suddenly happened to me, when really it didn't. It's been going on for a long time. And it's too late, it's too far down the road because of cirrhosis, this problem's been going on for a long time, and the only option is to get a new liver. Are there factors that could exclude somebody from having a liver transplant. We put the patient through a full evaluation, trying to figure out is the rest of that person healthy enough to go through one of the biggest operations. And so we have to make sure that they're healthy enough to go through the operation. Who are donor livers coming from? And is it necessarily the case that the recipient will receive a whole liver or are partial liver transplants done? Most of the 
transplants are going to be from people who've died and donated their organs. Only a small percentage come from living donors. But for living donation, taking half of a liver for an adult works very well. But for a deceased donor to split the liver in half, those results are not as good. So most of the time when it's an adult, we're going to give them a whole liver from someone who's died and half of a liver from someone if they have a living donor. Next, how are liver recipients prioritized for transplants? Dr. Hughes explains that it doesn't work like with other organs. When a person is listed for a kidney transplant, we have the luxury of having dialysis to take over for kidney function. For the liver, it's different. People on the liver waiting list are ranked by the MELD score, or Modified End Stage Liver Disease Score. A MELD score. How does that work? It's a number based on four blood tests that we put into an equation, and that goes from six, which is normal, to 40, and those numbers equate to the person's survival rate for the next three months. And a person with a MELD score of 40 is most likely going to die within that time. Although it's less common, Dr. Hughes says the best-case scenario is a living donor. That's a best-case scenario. If we have the option for a living donor liver transplant, then we can get people transplanted and it doesn't matter what their MELD score is. We can transplant them before they get so sick. But when it comes to the far more common deceased donor... When that happens, an organ procurement organization go to that hospital where the donor is and then they start a process of test after test and then all of the donor information is entered into the computers at the United Network for Organ Sharing and UNOS will generate a list of people's names for each organ that come up from that donor. The organ procurement organization will see whose names are at the top of those lists. And if it's one of my patients at UPMC, they will make an offer of this liver to us. If everything is okay by all the testing, then I would accept that liver for my patient because we want to make as sure as we can we're giving a good liver because we want to do this transplant once. We want them to come back and tell us how great they're doing. Of course, there are risks with a liver transplant. The biggest risk is being able to keep you healthy enough while you're waiting and getting to the top of the list because things can happen that we miss our window of opportunity and a patient dies on the list. The second is the risk of the operation itself. This is probably the single biggest operation that's done. There's post-surgical complications that can occur as well, but Dr. Hughes says the one people most often ask about is less common than you'd think. People ask me all the time, am I going to lose my liver to rejection? For the liver, we probably see it the least commonly of all of the organs that are transplanted. And in fact, it's pretty rare for us to lose a liver to rejection anymore. Following a liver transplant, the length of recovery varies. If we can get a patient transplanted with a living donor liver transplant when their MELD score is much lower. They have a much easier recovery because they weren't as sick to start with. But most of the patients that we have in the hospital who undergo transplant are in the intensive care unit for two or three days and then they go to a regular hospital room for another week to 10 days and then they're discharged from the hospital. But some people may have to go to a rehab facility to continue to work on their strength. What about limitations following surgery? There's no reason why a person can't get back to the quality of life that they had before their significant liver disease. We really don't put many restrictions on people. The whole reason we're doing this is to give people their lives back. But sadly, that's not always the 
the outcome if a liver isn't available. Waiting for a long time on the liver transplant list can literally be a deadly thing. We don't want to miss our window of opportunity, and that's the most tragic part of this process. Yeah, we recognize there was a problem, but there was nothing that we could do about it. But when he can tell a patient there's a new liver and new life for them. Knowing that we can dramatically change somebody's life makes it all worth it. As physicians, we need those high points to be able to balance the low points when we're not able to save someone. So it doesn't just help the patient, it helps us too. That's Dr. Christopher Hughes, Surgical Director of Liver Transplantation at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center's Starzl Transplantation Center. Earlier this show, we learned how rare primary sclerosing cholangitis is. There are about 30,000 people in the United States with this disease. Today, you'll hear from one of them. Meet Ron. Today, he's remarkably healthy compared to where he was just a couple of years ago. Years earlier, when we worked together at a radio station in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he was already battling illness then. But you'd never know it based on his positive personality and seemingly endless energy on the outside. But inside, something very serious was happening. Ron tells us that his health issues began not with liver disease, but with another diagnosis. I was diagnosed originally with ulcerative colitis. I was 19 years old, and I remember just thinking, hey, what do I take to get rid of this? Doctor was like, eh, it's not that simple. Through the colitis, they were constantly doing blood work on me. Through the blood work, my doctor kept seeing that I had high liver enzymes, and he could never get them under control, even though he could get the colitis under control. And although he was diagnosed with something, he felt, well... Pretty normal. I was just going about normal life, you know, being a kid, going to concerts, whatever we were doing, I was going about my normal life. Really, it had no effects on me at that point. Life was pretty carefree. I really didn't think much about my health because I was young and you don't think anything can take you down. But eventually, Ron's ulcerative colitis did take him down, resulting in the removal of his colon and having an ileostomy. Then, a couple of years ago, he started noticing symptoms of something else. Summer of 2015, I started feeling like something was going on, and I thought it was maybe just the ileostomy was having some issues. So I finally made an appointment with the surgeon who did the ileostomy, and he noticed when he did my blood work that there were some other issues. They could just see the liver enzymes were higher. So he's like, uh, I'm going to make an appointment for you to go see the liver doctor. That was when it came down, you're pretty sick right now. He said there were symptoms that something was wrong. I was walking around. I'd noticed that I would have to sit down a lot. An instance that I remember was we were in Atlantic City. So we went down to the boardwalk, and I could barely make it 100 yards down the boardwalk without having to sit down. Those were my initial signs. Being a typical guy, did Ron go to see his doctor right away? <laughs> what do you think? I did not. I waited thinking maybe this will go away. So I made an appointment somewhere in September to October. The earliest I could get in was the end of November. Once he got in to see his doctor, Ron was immediately referred to a liver specialist who was quickly able to make a diagnosis. I was diagnosed with PSC, primary sclerosing cholangitis. Hard word to say. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it correctly. <laughs> he is saying it correctly, and unfortunately, he had it. In Ron's case, the disease had progressed to a serious point. His doctor helped him understand how serious. He said, do you have a full-time job? And I said, yes. And he's like, I find that hard to believe. 
From what I'm looking at in the reports from your blood work, you should be in the hospital right now. But for Ron, it was still a bit hard to understand just how sick he was. The days that I felt good were more than the days I didn't feel good. I didn't think it was a problem, except for you'd have a day or two where you're just like, man, something's wrong, and I didn't know what it was. Plus, there were many other common symptoms of PSC that he simply didn't have. They ask you, are you itching a lot? I guess itching is something, if you have liver disease, you itch a lot. Another symptom is ammonia will start to build up in your bloodstream and cause you to start forgetting things. And he was asking me if I had any issues with that. He also asked my wife, and she said, no, he's fine. I've never found him confused or anything like that. But I really didn't have any of those symptoms. Despite this, the diagnosis was accurate and the doctor's prognosis was cut and dry. Pretty much a liver transplant. That was the prognosis right then and there. But he's like, let's run some more tests. So they do some MRIs. He could see that my liver was in really bad shape. And at that point, he immediately looked at me and he said, are you opposed to a liver transplant? And I just said, well, if that's my only option, he said, that's your only option. Ron wasn't opposed, but although he understood the seriousness of his condition, he said it was kind of hard to get his mind around because... I was still working, so I was still doing my normal daily routine. Still, the fact remained there were no other treatments, no other therapies. The only treatment was a liver transplant. That was the cure for what I had. They didn't give me any other options. As serious as it was, Ron said he wasn't quite yet at end-stage liver failure based on his MELD score. A normal person has a MELD score of probably under seven. My MELD score at the time I was diagnosed was a 22, so I was not at end stage, but I was getting close. Very close. Ron was placed on the liver transplant list. What was his mindset at that point? My mindset was, okay, well, let's get this over with and let's get it done. You know, I, I wasn't sitting back and thinking, oh God, what am I going to do? I was like, okay, well, let's do this. Which is an amazingly positive outlook knowing that you're awaiting a life-saving liver transplant. Oh yeah. I was like, let's get it done because I'm still not ready to cash out yet. And at this point, I'm still working. So to me, I'm like, when do you think this is going to happen? Because I still got work to do. But he admits that over time, being on the transplant list started weighing on him heavily. As the months progressed, and it was pretty quickly, you start to go downhill. In January is when I was diagnosed. I was added to the transplant list in February. By April or May, I was spiraling out of control. My body was shutting down. So it gets pretty grim at that point. And day by day, things got progressively worse. Well, at that point, they had stopped me from working. I was doing blood work once a week. So when I would get blood results, they were like, you got to come back into the hospital. That's how they would re-regulate my body. And it got to a point where this was happening once or twice a week. And that's where I knew that I can't keep doing this. So you start knowing in your head, like, this is coming to an end real soon. Ron tells us being on the transplant list for a new liver wasn't a challenge. I wasn't worried about getting a transplant. I went on the list the first week of February, and I had the transplant on June 5th. But he says the waiting really is tough. Looking back on it, it's a horrible thing because you don't know when it's going to happen. You have to carry your phone with you. If you don't answer it, they will call your wife's phone. If she doesn't answer it, they go on to the next person. So you have to have that phone on you 24 hours a day. Friends would ask, so do you know anything? And it's like, no, I don't. So it really messes with your mind. You just don't know. And there's nobody that can tell you. Finally, after nearly five months on the transplant list and wondering when that call would come, Ron got the news he was waiting for. Just not the way he expected. Well, it really wasn't a phone call. I was in the hospital and I got out. I went back home. 
I got called back to the hospital, and I had to stay there. One of the doctors walked in, and he introduced himself. I'm Dr. Hughes. I'm a liver surgeon. In my mindset, this guy's just making sure I'm coherent to go home because I'd been in the hospital in and out now for the last week and a half. Well, the next thing you know, as he wraps up the conversation, he's like, you still want that liver transplant? I said, yeah. He said, you want it today. I just looked at him. I said, you have a match? He's like, I do. You want that transplant today? And I started crying and was like, yes, I do. And he was like, good. We can do the transplant. So cool. When he woke up from his rather sudden transplant surgery. You're not in too much pain yet, considering they cut through all the nerves in your stomach. The stitches go from one side of my body to the other. They call it a Mercedes scar because it kind of looks like a Mercedes-Benz emblem. As expected, some post-transplant discomfort set in. Because as soon as you get out of surgery, they want you up walking around. I'd have to say, of any of it, that was the most painful, being moved around and being forced to walk. He'd like to tell you that with a new liver in his body, he instantly felt better. But when you're still recovering, you feel pretty horrible. But once the surgical procedure starts to wear off and you're healing, you really know that, hey, I feel a hundred times better. And his quality of life today? Right now, 100%. I feel great. I'm back to doing everything that I did before, working and broadcasting here at CBS in Pittsburgh, working for Golf Channel. It's almost like I just took a year out of my life. It's like 2016 never happened to me. And for being a person now who's 47, I feel like I'm a new person. So now that he's survived, to chronic liver disease, what's his advice for others facing the same? Go see the doctor and listen to them. Family would be like, oh, no, no, you shouldn't do that. I'm like, no, the doctors are telling me to do this. That's what I'm doing. Listen to your doctors. They know what they're doing. They're the ones that are going to guide you through everything. What's his advice for someone considering becoming an organ donor? Do it. My life was saved, but there were four people that were saved from the person who had passed away. And it was that person's gift that helped Ron's life go from... Before I had the transplant, I'd say it was pretty grim. There was no outlook anymore. To today, having... A future, because without that, I mean, I honestly know I wouldn't be here today. And on that note, we've reached the end for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Tom Nilon from the American Liver Foundation, Dr. Nicholas LaRusso from Mayo Clinic, Dr. Christopher Hughes from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and a special thanks to Ron for sharing his experience of receiving a new liver and new life. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, reminding you once again to love your liver. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.